Good morning. Come on, y'all are getting so much better at that. Good morning and happy Father's Day for those of you um, who are with us today. Um, I am Allie Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here. And like Stephen already said, he caught us at a great time. We're week two diving in to this summer sermon series on vices and virtues. That's right. During the summer, when you're going to the pool and beach trips and really fun romance novels, we're going to talk about what's colloquially called as the seven deadly sins and their corresponding virtues. But we're doing it on purpose. You might say, why? Why are we talking about this now? And the reason is, is because here at the Grove, and this is unique kind of to our tradition, we believe that if you had to like boil down what it means to be Christian. If you ask, like, what is the Christian life? What is the Christian project? What we believe that is, is to live like Jesus. And lots of people boil this down. Scripture actually boils this down to say something along the lines of, we're supposed to grow into the image of Christ. Or you might hear it in Scripture saying, taking on the mind of Christ. But they all involve the same project, the same command for us to live as he lived. And where that starts is in our hearts and our minds, because of course, we're not first century rabbis, so our lives are not going to look exactly like Jesus, but the inside, our character, who we are, that, that can be like Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're talking about this summer. We're talking about vices and virtues, because this is an ancient teaching, like thousands of year old. The first kind of inklings of this are in the third and fourth century because some Christian thinkers were trying to think about, well, how do we become more like Christ? And the first step they decided was to identify some categories that separated us from being like Christ. And they separated them into two ideas. One was this idea of vice, the things that moved us away from the image of Christ. And the other was virtue, the idea of all these things that Christ himself embodied that we want to move into. And what's really interesting about vices and virtues is that they actually have the same definition. They're the same concept, really. It's the idea of a habit, a pattern of action that eventually can start to form your character. And usually these habits start in the heart and mind. They start internally. And then, over time, they start to shape your desires. They shape what you actually want. And then, they shape your behaviors, how you act. And if you repeat those enough, over and over and over again, then they start to form your character, or who you are. But they're kind of similar ideas on opposite sides of the spectrum, right? We either fall into a vicious cycle or a virtuous cycle. And so our goal in this series is to bring awareness to those vices, think about the virtues that we are trying to get to, and talk about how to bridge the gap. How do we get from vices to virtues? And one way that I think is really helpful of how people have categorized vices is a definition that was proposed by Augustine in, in the fourth century. He called vices disordered desires. 
let that sink in for a second, disordered desires, because we're going to talk a lot more about that throughout this sermon, okay? Disordered desires. You know, what he thought, and what lots of people thought after him, was that the Christian heart could be summarized in this way. When it's properly working, when it's working like Christ, it has three desires. Love of God, love of others, then love of self. And some of you may have heard a modern version of this. If you went to camp in the 90s and 2000s, it was I am third was the message of of that. But it's love God, love others, love self. That is our proper orientation. That's how we live this abundant life. That's how we live a better life here, how we make the world a better place, by keeping our hearts in that order. But what happens with vices, what's sneaky about vices, is that love of self starts to creep up and overpower love of God and love of others. And what's super sneaky is that it's not usually like mortal sins. Like they're not things that you are violating the Ten Commandments. You're not murdering anyone. You're not believing in multiple gods. They're just ordinary things. But because they become habits, they start to creep up and eventually they start to lead us on a path that scripture calls the path of death and destruction. It's very, you know, mild description there. Death and destruction, yes? It starts to wreck our relationships. starts to wreck our own health sometimes. It starts to wreck our life here on earth. But maybe more than anything else, it starts to wreck our connection with God. And without that connection, we're not living the life that God designed us to live. And so that definition of disordered desires, well, it applies to all vices. All of them are disordered desires. All of them involve love of self trumping love of God and love of others. That's what Stephen talked about last week. But the thinkers that were thinking about this early on in ancient times, they wanted to narrow that down. They wanted to be more specific. How do these disordered desires show up like in our real life? How do they actually show up in our life? So they narrowed it down to seven categories, sometimes nine, but we're going to stick with the seven. And this is the list. This is the list that they came up with. Spoiler alert, you can write that down, map it on a calendar. That's what we're going to follow. So you know which weeks to come and not come, all right? You can follow that list, all right? So we're going to start with that top one today. We're going to start with gluttony. And can I say a little caveat before we get to gluttony? I did not want to talk about this. I did not. I was kind of mad at Stephen when we decided the sermon schedule, and he switched the, you switched the vices on me, uh-huh, and he put this one at the top, and I was like, oh, because here's why. Our culture has a lot to say about gluttony. They tell us a lot of stuff about eating. I bet you all of you, either in a doctor's office or on your own, have read some sort of book. It doesn't call it gluttony, but you call it something relationship with food, something along those lines. And I thought, God, I don't want to talk about something that people have been exposed to a lot. But then I dug into gluttony. I dug into what they meant as gluttony. And it really changed my perspective. So I hope that even though you might be an expert on these things, you might have perfected your relationship with food, you haven't been in therapy for 30 years over this. I hope that this will give you a different lens, maybe something we can learn from as we think about our relationship with food. And that brings us to what is gluttony. Let's narrow it down. So gluttony is a pattern of excessive desire, too much desire, for consumable goods, usually food or drink. Someone pointed out this week, they're like, well, gluttony, it can 
apply to lots of things. You can be gluttonous about gluttony. It's like, no, no, no. For Christians, and this sin, when we're talking about gluttony, we're talking primarily about food and drink, mostly food. But we're talking about food and drink, things that go inside your body. That's what we're talking about, an excessive desire of these things. And what is so interesting about all of these vices and why they don't feel like mortal sins is that they always start with something good. They always start with something good. Most of the vices start with a good thing, something that's God-given, something that we're supposed to feel. And of course, for gluttony, that desire is for food. And it's not, if you go back and look at what the Bible has to say about food, overwhelmingly, food is a God-given and good thing. So you start off from the very first chapter in Genesis 1. God's creating the earth, and immediately the first thing he says is, I have created, I give you, let me see, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Immediately, it becomes a gift a sign of God's provision. Food is good. And later on in the Old Testament, food itself, manna, comes from heaven and becomes a sign of God's covenant with his people. It is a sign of God's provision. And that's the literal option for food. But then even metaphorically, God chooses the metaphor of the land of milk and honey to describe the promised land. And then we get this interesting turn in the Old Testament. So, so far, food is good. We're talking specifically about these metaphors of food. And then we make this kind of subtle turn about eating. And we get this when God establishes the Passover meal. Suddenly, there becomes this kind of indication among the Old Testament and in the Israelites that eating must be about more than food. God must have intended something bigger than just us tasting the good gift that he has given. There is something more powerful that happens around a meal than we thought. And God gives all these instructions around how we do the Passover meal, how Jews celebrate this annual tradition, arguably the most important meal that Jews celebrate every year. He gives like very specific instructions about what the food is, how they gather, when. And it is clear that to God, this act of eating, oh, it's supposed to be more than just about this good food. It's supposed to do something in us about bringing us together, about making us into a people of God. And this theme, if we just left it at Passover, would be fine, but then it carries over into the New Testament when you go read Jesus' ministry, it's not a mistake that most of Jesus' ministry is around meals. Here's the Son of God, and how does he minister? Loaves and fishes. How does he minister with people? With bread. With breaking bread. That's why he gets in trouble most of the time. Because he's eating with people that he shouldn't be eating with. There is something powerful in this act. And as I was thinking more about food in the Bible, I got really deep dive into this, I thought about this common thing that we do every month here that is so peculiar. What do we do every month here? We eat the Lord's Supper, right? That's weird. That's weird, y'all, that we have an eating tradition inside of our church. We do something with food in our space as part of our worship every month. 
or every week in certain traditions. And we do that because early churches, other than worshiping together, they ate together. That was like the second thing on the list. And a lot of times that worship involved eating. But how strange and how peculiar for Christians to carry on this tradition that eating food means something so beautiful, so good about making us a people that we celebrate it as part of our worship. And Paul in the New Testament goes on and talks about this. And most of those letters that he writes, a lot of them, if you go back and look, a lot of them is around eating. Like he's giving them perspectives and kind of um, instructions on how to eat with each other. Don't eat the meat because that might, you know, make people not believe. Eat this way when you do communion. Make sure you don't serve alcohol in this way. Do this. He talks a lot about how the church eats together. It is clear, and this is not super disputed, it is clear that in our Christian tradition, eating is good and God-given. It is a beautiful, good thing, and the desire for food, the desire to eat with one another, is good. But the problem, the problem comes in when that desire becomes excessive or more than we bargained for, because what happens is that we start to seek pleasure from food in a way that takes our own pleasure above the needs of those that we're eating with, and honestly, our own health. We start to run into some issues when that good desire becomes overinflated. And Frederick Buechner, who's a theologian, has this beautiful quote. I love this quote. A glutton who raids is someone who raids the ice bog for cure for spiritual malnutrition. A glutton is someone who raids the ice box for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. And that, that is why we take a good thing and we make it bigger than it should be because we see how good it feels to eat good food, to be with good people, to drink good wine. We like that experience and we think, oh, if we fill our bodies, will we also be filling our souls? Is there a way that we can take this goodness and just expand it in ourselves so that we can feel spiritually full too? Can we get all those things that we want love and friendship and belonging and meaning and rest. Can we get them through this temporal thing that's right there in front of us? It's a lot easier to get that than try to get love and meaning. I'm going to take the food every time. And so we do. And the secular world like names this, right? We call this emotional eating. We know what it is because we do it. All of us do it, right? It's why after the breakup, we excuse ourselves to go to Baskin Robbins and take every pint of ice cream or Ben and Jerry's if you're snobby like that, right? <laughs> it's why when I was writing the sermon, I was, I don't know, I was, I was had a long day. I've been home with my kids all day and I was so tired and I needed rest. But instead of resting, what did I do? There's like this bag of snacks that the youth leaves in the pantry and it's all carbs and I went and got some and I got one bag and got another bag. I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing the sermon, right? Like I am trying to fill something inside of me with something that's easy to grab and easy to hold on to. And this becomes a problem because the food won't actually solve what we want. It won't get us what we need. 
And it's so weird because intellectually, we actually kind of know this. Like, we know that. We know it. But when we're in a place where our emotions are strained, where we're tired, we can convince ourselves that the food can fill us in the ways that we want. Now, what's also hard about gluttony is that when most of us think of gluttony, they think of this. Right? They think of this cartoon. This is a glutton. And then you read this and you're like, this is a glutton. Oh, it's not me. I mean, occasionally at Thanksgiving, but this is not me. Right? We associate gluttony with these kind of physical or behavioral symptoms. And we kind of roll our eyes and say, oh, no, I manage that. I'm over that. I don't do that. And honestly, that's where I was a little bit at the beginning of this sermon. I was like, ah, I mean, this is gluttony. And I don't know how much this might apply to us here at this church. But then, sneakily, I read this little, it's, a, it's like a jingle that they made up in the Middle Ages in Latin, so it doesn't rhyme to us. But this was a little jingle that they made up in the sixth century to describe the different patterns of gluttony. And this, this one will kill you, all right? So I'm going to describe them. Too daintily, too sumptuously, too hastily, too greedily, too much. This is what they described whenever they needed to call out what gluttony looked like. Because gluttony, as the Porky Pig picture showed, was not available for most people in the Middle Ages. But gluttony still ruled. And so they had to figure out, well, how does gluttony actually show up in people? And this is what they came. And I think this has some wisdom to teach us. So I'm going to explain the first two a little bit because those are kind of the hardest for us to unpack. The other three we'll kind of mention, but y'all get what they mean just by reading them, right? But let's start with this first one. Too daintily. Prepare yourselves. Because this, this is most perfectly described. Um, if you've ever read The Screwtape Letters, which is a book by C.S. Lewis, who describes it's the devil, and he's talking about how he's using these demons to manipulate human beings. And at one point in The Screwtape Letters, the demons are bragging, hey, we convince humans that they aren't gluttonous anymore because they don't overeat. Instead, we have convinced them to eat too daintily. And they describe this woman and they say, she's a terror to hostesses. She comes in with her special instruction. She sits at the table. They serve her and she says, oh, oh, no, 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 not me. I, I don't eat like that. I, I would like tea, but weak, but not too weak. I would like toast. It's a little crispy, but not too crispy. That's what I want. That's all I need. Thank you. And I thought, oh, oh, like that's our sin when it comes to gluttony sometimes. And you might think, well, why, why is that bad? Why is that bad? Here's why too daintily or too fastidiously is bad. Because inherently, what you are doing is prioritizing what you eat over the why. So you're saying, I can only have pleasure from this eating experience if I have food exactly the way I want it. I am only going to prioritize my needs over those of the servers, those who are hosting me, or those who I'm eating with. I don't really want to eat this, so I'm going to adapt and tell you exactly what I want in order to prioritize my self-pleasure over everyone else. And let me tell you, I have celiac. So this is me all the time. I am constantly making special instructions for people. Hey, I actually can't have that. I can't do that. And I don't think that's exactly what Gregory is talking about. But I do think it highlights something that we do. We have come to meals, all of us do, 
and think, this meal is about me. This meal is about, oh, I get to have that really good steak, but only if it's cooked perfectly, how I want it to be perfect. And that's going to determine the value of this meal. That's going to determine what good comes out of this meal. Instead of thinking about how that narrow preoccupation with your self-pleasure is affecting the people at the table and your experience with those at the table. And when you eat too daintily, when you narrow what you can eat, the what of what you can eat, then you automatically limit the goodness that you can receive from God's abundance, right? You're saying that, oh, I know better than God about what I like and what is good for me. So I'm going to take this and I'm going to make specific instructions. And that's how too daintily as a sin or mark of gluttony shows up in our life. The next one, too sumptuously. Too sumptuously is the idea, it's also about what you eat, but it has to do with this concept that the pleasure we derive from food is not just about the taste of food. If it were, then dieting would be really easy. You just taste the food and spit it out, right? It's not about the taste of food. That's not what's pleasuring to us. It's also the feeling of filling your body, like the fullness, right? We talk about this all the time in diets, right? Protein, carbs, they fill your body, and that's what we're seeking most of the time when we seek food. And so too sumptuously is when we seek a narrow category of foods that fill our bodies. We call these comfort foods. Yes? Comfort foods. The foods that are high in sugar, usually high in fat, high in protein, they fill our bodies. We want these foods, usually for emotional reasons, because we want to fill our bodies. But when we narrow, again, when we narrow what we can eat, what we want to eat, what we think we deserve, we automatically put that love of self over both God and the gift he has given us in food and a variety of food and the people that we are eating with. So we have to be on guard for the too sumptuously form of eating. Then the last three. Too hastily, you eat before you're hungry. You don't give space for your body to breathe. Too greedily, you eat, but you take... So I know this is Thanksgiving when you get the pie and it's really good and then you go back and the pie is gone and you're like devastated. That feeling, that feeling of like, oh, that was supposed to be mine. That is too greedily. It's when we take the portions that we really want from other people because we feel like we want to fill ourselves with that food. Yes? And then too much. Too much is actually the easy one because too much is a little bit of what we talk about when we talk about dieting, right? Most of American culture is focused on this last one. Oh, you just need to eat less. Like that's the answer. Eat less. Don't supersize the things. Don't get the extra large, all this stuff. And there's some truth to that, but it's been overemphasized to the point where we're talking about the amounts of food that we eat instead of the why behind why we're eating like that. Does that make sense? So you have to make sure that when you're thinking about gluttony, you're thinking about the ways that it shows up in your life, in your relationship with food. And these can be, although they're not all inclusive, can be helpful reminders of how you can eat better and have a relationship with food. Now, I've told you all about gluttony. You're starting to think about gluttony. 
you've started to think about, oh God, how did I, well, you're thinking about your Father's Day barbecue today. You're like, oh goodness, oh goodness, what am I going to do? But we're not going to leave you there. Because the goal of this series is to highlight those vices, to help you with awareness and understand what they are, right? But it's also to move us from this place of vice to virtue. And the virtue that is historically named when we talk about gluttony is this virtue that we don't use anymore, but it's called temperance. You can also say sobriety. And what temperance is, is a moderation of our desires, mostly for things of this world, and how it manifests itself is a balance, an almost detachment from the things of the world in a healthy way. Temperance is the virtue that we want to cultivate in our lives. But the next question in your mind should be like, great, how do I get there? How do I do that? And this is where the spiritual practices come in for us. We did not make this up. This is like an ancient idea that in order to get from vice to virtue, you engage in things called spiritual practices. When you do this, you are engaging in a practice called spiritual formation. You are moving from this place to become more like Jesus, and you're employing some actions to change your habits. That's what it is. You're changing your habits. So we're going to talk about two today, and then we'll wrap up, okay? The first one, and this might be true of every vice, the first one, Stephen already mentioned it, is always, always self-examination. Don't start practices or spiritual formation or disciplines without starting with, hmm, where am I now? Because here's what's going to happen. Those seven vices, they often map on to different personalities and temperaments. So as we go through this next seven weeks, there are going to be some, they're like, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. And then there'll be others that you'll be like, ooh, I have a problem with that. And mostly it's because your personality and your temperament. So you need to come back to that place of self-examination to evaluate what makes the most sense What's going to be the most formative for me to start to work on now? And when it comes to self-examination and gluttony, I think these questions that I am, again, borrowing from Augustine on this in the fourth century, this is what he proposed, and I love that it's still relevant to us, but this is what he said. What you eat and how much you eat matters not at all when it comes to virtue building and virtue growing. But what matters is are you eating in a way that's appropriate to these three things. Are you eating in a way that maintains or improves your health? This is the easy one. This is what your doctor asked you about. This is why you're on certain diets. We ask that first one all the time. We examine ourselves for that one, not in a spiritual sense necessarily, but we ask that. But these next two, that's what I wanna talk about a lot. Are you eating in a way that's appropriate for your community? And what I mean by this, and what Augustine actually said, was, are you eating in a way that's appropriate for the people that you eat with? Usually the people you live with. And you might think, well, what does that matter? And then you start to think about all the ways that your individual preferences dictate how you eat. How do you, with the people you normally eat, sit down at the table and assume that everyone's gonna have a slightly different meal, or you're gonna cook this thing and not think about your spouse in this way, or you're gonna not think about your kids in a way. 
you're, you're changing your habits based on what you want rather than what the people around you want. So let me show you how this might look like in my household. We have three little kids. I really don't want to change my eating habits to teach them good eating habits. But alas, I feel like that is the call from the sermon, is that I'm supposed to ask the question, am I eating in a way that is appropriate to the people that I'm living with? In other words, am I supposed to moderate the fact that I can like sneak in some cookies in the pantry that I don't let them touch, I touch only? Is that appropriate for what I am living into as a parent? I think the sermon and this idea of gluttony calls that into question. It says, am I prioritizing my love of self over the people I live with? Am I abandoning all sense of community by my habits? And if you normally eat alone, this is also applicable to you. Because I think there's an argument, and I won't go into this, but I think there's an argument to say, is what we're eating, like where it comes from, and what we buy, does that matter? Is that our community too? Are we supposed to think about the people that are impacted by what we eat? I don't know, I'm just gonna throw that out there. Y'all can think about that. But you need to ask the question, am I eating in a way that makes sure that love of God and love of others, as hard as that is, is above love of self? Yes? The last one, your vocation. Vocation is a term that gets thrown, thrown around a lot. It doesn't mean job. It means God gave you specific giftings. You sometimes use those in your jobs. Sometimes you don't. It means what has God given you on your Christian mission in this world in order to become and be like Jesus in this world? What has he given you? And are you eating in a way that's appropriate to that mission? A great example of this we're going to take from uh, Marines. The Marines or military EMREs, those meal-ready packs, right? They have to change their consumption, their pattern of consumption, based on the mission that they're on. Sometimes that's what we have to do too. We have to change our patterns of consumption based on the mission that God has given us. And I can't tell you exactly what that looks like because it depends on your circumstances. For some of you, that might be fasting. For some of you, that's feasting. For some of you, that's eating really simple foods because you don't have time to prepare foods based on your vocation. Sometimes that means celebrating with people and eating feasts regularly. Based on what God has called you to do in this world, are you eating in a way that prioritizes that mission over what you actually want to eat? Okay, those are the questions. Now the second practice, and we'll wrap up really quickly. Y'all guessed this one because you already knew it. The practice is fasting. I hate fasting. I don't like it. I don't do it that much. So I say this in the same position you're in. But here's the thing. Fasting is by far the most common Christian practice that has been practiced from the, Jesus did it, from the very beginning. And I cannot deny that wisdom, that it is the practice along with prayer, that has been most commonly recommended and advised in the tradition of, of wisdom that we have. And so today what I did is I came up, depending on those five that I listed, I came up with a way of thinking about fasting that you might employ for a short term, like for example, for the month of July or for the rest of June. 
you want to release and want to do the rest of June. All right? Do the rest of June. You might employ these. So you might give up ordering food with special instructions. You might ask a waiter, whatever you want to bring me. That scares a lot of you. But you can do it. All right? See what happens. I'd be curious. Give up an indulgence. A lot of y'all are in the common practice of this. You might give up fast food or snacks. So you're kind of waiting space between those. You might practice serving others the first and last portions. This is a really common practice in a lot of cultures. We don't do it here, but it is a common practice. Serve the first portion and the last. And then set a limit on the quantity of food you'll eat. And again, I don't want to be overly restrictive about this. I don't think that's the point. Take off your diet hat and put on your Christian hat, and we'll talk a little bit more about what this means. If you have questions, you can absolutely email me, and we can talk a little bit more about what that means. But these practices are some that you can consider for the next couple, couple months, couple of weeks. Don't do months, do weeks, all right? And here's why. I am curious what would happen if you did. That's the question. What would happen if you did? What would you notice? What would change? My guess is that maybe your desires would start to change. And when your desires start to change, your behaviors start to change. And when your behaviors start to change, your character starts to change. And that's what we're going for. In a second, um, the band is going to come up and sing this song that we sung last week and will continue singing in this series. It's a hymn. And it says, yet not I, but Christ in me. And y'all, when I started studying gluttony in this sermon, do you know how many times gluttony came up for me this week? Oh. And it'll happen for you today. I'm sorry about your Father's Day barbecue again. It'll come up for you. And you'll think, like I thought, oh my God, there's so much in this. There's no way that I can change these habits that are like so ingrained in me. I, I've almost like adapted to cope this way. Like this is how I cope with my life. And then I was reminded of this song. And I was reminded that my hope doesn't, it doesn't land or have its foundation in the fact that I can do this. That's called self-help. But the Christian message is different. The Christian message says, oh no, I can't do this. I want to because I want to live a life that Jesus has called me to, but I can't. And that's where we rely on the Holy Spirit. That's where we believe and stake our hope on something bigger than us. That the Holy Spirit is an invitation for you to participate in the life of God. That you can hear and you can now. So the band is going to come up and sing. They'll sing this song. And we'll sing the last couple of verses. And as we do, I hope you find it as a prayer, like I did. A prayer that you can move from vice to virtue. Because it's not just you doing the work. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, this is hard work, thinking about these ordinary things that the world tells us so much about, that we feel like we're kind of overwhelmed with knowledge by. Help us to have faith in our ability to move past the narratives of the world and into your story, the one you have created us for. And let us know that it is the hope in you that we base our lives on and nothing more. Amen.